Hi guys, really quickly before we get to today's show with Rochelle Moulton, I just want to let you know that Lisa and I are going to be taking our own advice from last week's episode on how your family can help you build your career. We're going to basically take a week off from releasing a show episode on the 25th, and we are going to spend some time with our families, and we encourage you guys to do the same. Thank you so much for all the support you've shown our show in 2019, and we look forward to getting back to work with you in 2020. All right, that's enough of me. Let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Career Builders Podcast. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Lisa Picosek. And today we have a very, very special guest joining us. Her name is Rochelle Moulton. She's agreed to come on to the show to talk about consulting, which is going to be part of a larger career series that Lisa and I are working um, on for the show, and a little bit about molding your career to kind of match your strengths as you go through the trajectory of your life. Three really quick things as to why this is such an awesome episode, I think, for, for you, dear listener, to be tuning into. Number one is if you tune in or you know Rochelle and you've seen her work, she has an incredible story and it's very, very prominent in terms of the writing, the speaking, the marketing that she does. If you go to her website, there's a, a very clear personality in terms of who she is and the presence that she brings, which alone makes her an awesome guest. In addition to that, though, it's kind of a fun thing for Lisa and I because uh, the Career Builders podcast is really built off of Rochelle's own show, uh, which I'm going to get to in just a moment, The Business of Authority. And so for us to be able to kind of interview one of our early inspirations in terms of us growing up as podcasters and having someone like her to look to, it's, it's pretty neat, pretty meta for us to have this moment. Rochelle turns consultants and big thinkers into authorities. She earned her consulting and big thinker stripes, leading introverted brainiacs at some powerhouse global consulting firms, Towers Perrin and Arthur Anderson. Rochelle built, led, and sometimes sold a dozen of six, seven, and eight-figure consulting businesses before starting her current venture in 2007, where she earned the equivalent of a second MBA building authority brands and businesses with hundreds of soloists. She publishes The Daily Authority, co-hosts The Business of Authority podcast with Jonathan Stark, another guy I'm a huge fanboy of, I'll confess it, and writes weekly thought pieces for consultants on the Be Unforgettable blog. You can also find her on Twitter. Her handle is The Consulting Chick. The fact that you are here joining us today among all of the raving fans that you've got on that for us is, I think, a really important testament to you being willing to be generous with your time and us taking a little bit of a reach. And that goes back to what I wanted to mention earlier. If you're going to build anything, it takes some risk. And at the end of the day, you could have said no, and we could have been talking about something different today. But it, amazingly enough, you agreed to come on, and we are just so honored to have you on this show. So without further ado, Rochelle, welcome to the Career Builders Podcast. Well, thank you. My goodness, that's a fantastic introduction. Thank Take you. a deep breath now and relax. Yeah, <laughs> I need one. But I was thrilled when you asked me, actually, because, you know, we had some Twitter conversation about um, what you're trying to do with your podcast. And I think it's terrific. Thank it's you. exactly what we need more of. So I'm happy to be an early guest. Yes, we are incredibly honored. And as you saw earlier, a little bit starstruck. So thank you again. Lisa, why don't you take it over from here? Yeah. So I love what you've done with your consulting career and also with your business. And you do focus a lot on consultants. So our audience uh, 
it's one of those things where you might have somebody who's a consultant in your family, you might know somebody who's a consultant, but if you don't, consulting can be a bit of a scary thing. So I would love to pick your brain a little bit on that and with this career series, just give people an idea of you know, how to get into it, what it means and all that. So um, sure. how would you define consulting before we kind of get into that? Oh, that's a good question. Um, to me, consulting, I think of consulting as actually a discipline, like consulting skills are actually a, a, a set of learned and practiced skills. So to me, consulting is about helping a client to see something in a different way than they did when you started. And ideally, there should be a transformation of some kind. You know, it's not just that we're an extra pair of hands doing something for them, but that we actually change how they see something for the better, for mm -hmm. the better. Yeah. And so would you say that that's the difference between consulting and contracting is the hands-on piece? Well, generally, yes. I mean, it's funny because on our podcast, we talk a lot about, you know, what do we call this? Do we call it, is it freelancing? Uh, is it being an expert? Is it being authority? Is it being consulting? Um, I think consulting says to me, it can have execution with it. In fact, mm -hmm. I've done a lot of execution over the course of my career in consulting, but it always came with strategy. So it might be strategy plus the execution. I, I think it's, I think it's both of those. Again, it, it, it depends. You could be a contractor and be hired to do something very specifically where the client directs you on what to do. And I think of that as not, I don't want to say it's not consulting. I would say it's not pure consulting. Whereas right. consulting is your, your, before you're hired, you're interfacing with the client and you're designing what's going to happen. You're designing the process and you're kind of running that. The, the client's always ultimately in charge, but you're running that assignment. And you could do that on a contract basis, mm -hmm. or you could do it in, in some other way. That makes sense. And so you talk a lot also about authority. And so when you're bringing that knowledge into your conversations with the client, that's where the authority comes in. Yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. It's, it, authority is sort of like the farthest end of expertise, right? Because right. we start out and we have knowledge. And over time, we build that knowledge into expertise. And typically, the way it works in most people's careers is we become expert over something more narrow and more mm -hmm. narrow the more we develop, yeah. right? And then authority, to me, is the far end of that where um, your niche, your industry, your sector accepts you as an authority. I won't say the authority because it sort of depends on how we're describing it, but it, the authority is the far end of that spectrum. And for many people, that's a goal, but not for everybody. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. And can you tell us a little bit about your career in terms of where you started in consulting? Sure. I, I think I want to say I did this a little bit differently than a lot of people did. So I'm not sure my career is an example of the best way to do it. But yeah, I started out, uh, I actually worked first for an insurance company when I got out of school. And then I worked for a corporation really quickly after that. And that's when I started to see consulting as a career choice because we hired consultants. And I thought they had so much more fun than I did. Mm -hmm. I was really intrigued by what they did. And so I was working on my MBA at night. And when I finished my MBA, that's when I applied to some different consulting firms and got myself hired by one, uh, which was Towers. Well, back then it was 
um, it's called TPFNC, Towers Pair, and it's got another name now, but it was a global, uh, really uh, primarily human resource and strategy consulting firm. And once I started consulting, I kind of never looked back. And I, I mean, I can tell you more about that trajectory if you like. I just, uh, that's, that's how I got into it. Um, today, it's really hard to get into it early in your career without the MBA going the mm. MBA route. Yeah. You go to an MBA, to a top school, you, know, you go through that process. And, and if you're lucky, and there's a lot of luck that plays into it aside from the skill set, you've got to hit it just right, then you can get into big firm consulting. That makes mm. sense. Do you feel like it was a risk for you going that route? Well, yeah. I mean, I look at it now and think, no, it wasn't a risk, but it felt like a risk then. I had a, I had a corporate job. I'd finished my MBA. I had to move to take that first consulting job. Mm -hmm. So I moved to a bigger city. It was a little bit more intimidating. I was excited because I thought they were paying me so much money until I learned I couldn't really live on that <laughs> amount in the city I went to. That's right. um, yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, it's always a risk. You, you move, you start not just a new job, but a new career. Um, but I just felt like I knew it was going to work. I, I, I wanted to do it so badly. I felt like that was the fit. And I really liked the team that I joined. Uh, mm -hmm. There was a, a, not my boss, actually, my boss's boss was amazing in the interview process. And I, you know, my instinct was right, because he turned out to be one of the top mentors for me in my entire career, not, not just there. So wow. Yeah, you got to go with your gut sometimes. For sure. And so for anybody thinking about getting into consulting, you mentioned the MBA. What's one of the first steps that people can take to start going down other than the MBA? Ah, well, there's a few different ones. I mean, the, the path I see a lot now is you're doing something in what I call corporate. And by that, I mean, you know, a large organization of some size, Fortune 500, Fortune 2000 kind of, of a organization. And you're becoming, you're either a technician or you're becoming an expert at something. Mm -hmm. So that could be, um, you know, development. And we have a lot of developers that listen to our, our podcast as an example. It could be human resources. It could be finance. I mean, it could be almost anything. It's often a staff function, but not necessarily. And so you become more and more expert at that. And then you get to a point where you say, you know, I think I want to do something different. I think I want to run my own business. I want to be, you know, the, the master of my own fate. And those are the people that will say, I'm going to hang out a shingle. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the people that I meet have done this by having their former employer become their first client. Mm -hmm. It's not unusual, mm -hmm. right? But the key is if you're going to do this is you have to make the decision that you are going to have to sell your work going forward. That it's, this isn't just, oh, I just collect a paycheck mm -hmm. in a different way. Mm -hmm. This is really about working differently and you may start with your former employer but if you don't get other uh clients you're going to be in trouble at some point yeah absolutely totally there, there's a there's a third route i don't see as often and it's interesting because i think that my podcast co-host jonathan stark would describe his career this way where you do what you do inside an organization and then you join 
what I call a boutique consulting firm. So not one of the mega ones, but mm -hmm. somebody smaller. And usually you'll find your way to that through serendipity. It will be that you know somebody or you've met them maybe in an industry meeting and you kind of hit it off and they start to talk to you about it and you think, oh, well, that's a way to go. And so then what you have is you have typically, it's typically a salaried role, not always, could be contract, but you start with a firm, with somebody who has an established name, an established brand, existing clients. Mm -hmm. And so you can kind of move into it that way. So big picture, I would say those are kind of your three most typical career paths into consulting. Great. And what qualities do you see most in consultants? Like, is there a, a typical definition of a consultant or is it range? Is there a range? Well, I mean, first of all, I think this is going to sound weird. Maybe I think you have to be smart and it doesn't have to be book smart. It just has to be the kind of smart where you do your homework, mm -hmm. you listen to people, you ask questions. I mean, that's what I mean by by smart. It's not to me. It's not about you know how how many A's you got in in you know mm. which level of university. But it's it's smart. I think you have to be really curious, yeah. because every client, even when you're you're consulting from the same frame of reference and in the same technical area, every client's different. Mm -hmm. They've got a unique set of circumstances. They have a unique set of people you have to deal with. So you really have to be curious about what's going on with them and what they care about. Um, because one of the things that typically happens is the presenting problem usually isn't the real problem. Mm -hmm. And until you get really good at asking questions and learning more about what they're doing, uh, you know, you can, you can get sidelined by that. Right. So it sounds like it sounds like a lot of emotional intelligence, the curiosity piece that you've mentioned, and then a lot of really deep content specific uh, subject matter specific knowledge. Yeah. And I think the last thing is that you have to care. Mm. And, you know, one of the things that can happen in in big firms in particular, I saw it a lot. I mean, it was really frustrating to me is that sometimes it's not that the consultant doesn't care about the client at all, but what they care most about is being right. Mm. You know, that I'm gonna do this research and I'm gonna do this analysis and I'm gonna present you with three options and I'm gonna tell you the recommended one and then you're not gonna pick my recommendation. You know, it's, it's about really, you have to care about what happens to them because if you care, they will see that mm -hmm. and you can be more effective. It has to me, it has to do with the transformation. It's like, sure. who are you going to listen to? Somebody who really cares about you and what you're trying to do or somebody who's more invested in themselves than they are in you. Sure. Yeah. Feeling like they have the same goal. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. It's like being parented by your mom or dad versus a stranger. Like who would you go with naturally? <laughs> <laughs> Depends on your mom or dad. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. So, Consulting isn't really a, a career path that people think about. Like when you're in high school and you're thinking about what am I going to do with my life, it's not something that really comes up. And I, yeah. I kind of wish that it would. So would you say that consulting should be a class that you can take? Well, I think there are some consulting classes now in, in B school in particular, but yeah, I do because here's, it's, it's a little bit like 
nobody teaches us how to manage a checkbook in mm-hmm. school, right? Yeah. And then you go out on your own and you have to figure out how to manage credit, how to manage your checkbook. Consulting skills can be used with any kind of a job because mm-hmm. it's really about defining a problem and creating a solution with other people. Right. And you know, in a big picture world, that applies to everything. It applies to your relationships. It applies to the work you do in a corporate staff job. Um, it applies to, you know, as you're growing in your career and you start to run t- teams of people and consulting skills are, are hugely helpful in all of that. Yeah, yeah. so true. Yeah, I vote for that. <laughs> awesome. Now, I know that uh, Mike has some questions now that are dig a little bit further into your career. So I'll pass it back over to Mike. Yeah, let's um, just to start off with what made you leave big firm consulting? Ah, interesting. Well, let me tell you a story about what happened. So um, this was at a time when there really weren't as many women in consulting and particularly as many Mm. women partners as I hope there are now. I don't think it's changed a lot. It's still about between 25 and 30 percent women, um, at least in big firms. So I was a fairly new partner. Uh, with the firm. And what happened was there were a bunch of women that were all starting to have babies. And they were in somewhere in their late 20s, somewhere in their early to mid 30s. And and they would leave the firm. And they left because in order to be successful in this particular big firm, you couldn't just work 40 hours a week, you got to work 60 or sometimes 80. And you've got to be able to do that. And while this, the structure existed for them to dial back yep. to fewer hours, they didn't feel valuable. So they either tended to, to say, I'm going to go into a corporate role where I can manage my life more, or they'd stay at home for some amount of time. Mm-hmm. So what would happen is when one of these women would give their resignation, they started sending them to me to talk them into staying. And it was really challenging because these were great women. I wanted them to stay with the firm. And there wasn't a, a, you know, an untalented one among them. And then when the last one explained the situation to me, I had this talk with maybe two or three, and I'd had some success in getting them to stay and stay and some not. And she explained the whole scenario and what she was looking at. And I said, I can't believe I'm going to say this to you, but I do think you need to leave based on what you've told me your goals are and what you want to have happen next. And this light bulb went off that what we need is a firm where people can work flexibly and they don't have to make this choice that you can still do great intense work, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to be 80 hours a week or nothing. And so um, I'd heard of a firm at that time in Chicago that was doing something similar in the financial area. And so I teamed up with a partner and we created one in what we called human resources, which was organizational development and design strategy, um, compensation. uh, What else did we do? Uh, Communications. So internal employee kinds of communications. So we started the firm. It's what gave me that kind of push to leave the nest because I realized I'd been wanting to do something where I created it myself and ran it. And I just didn't know what that looked like. And when I saw this, it just, again, just boom, it, it, uh, it, it grabbed me. Cool. So kind of going back a little bit 
to what you were saying about trusting your gut and having that be a real voice in terms of directing your career and in your life. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I don't recommend listening to your gut if you haven't done a lot of soul searching and thinking and, sure. and you know, making sure you can still buy groceries yeah. after you make those big decisions. But yeah, I think at some point you just know that it's time to move on. And I loved that firm. I loved, I spent 10 years with them. Loved it. I, I was thrilled with the work, um, but I was ready to do something different. I thought being a partner somehow would be more interesting. And in fact, it was less interesting because mm. I wasn't doing as much of the work. I was sure. supervising work yeah. and I spent my days like supervising people and projects and, and things. And it, you know, at one point it just wasn't that interesting anymore. Yeah. You were to kind of borrow Seth Godin's terminology, you were kind of no longer a freelancer and you'd stepped back, taken the hands off some of the work and become more of an entrepreneur. Would that be fair to say? Well, in, inside the firm, it, you know, the way that it works in a big firm is it's all about leverage. Yeah. And so as you go up the pyramid, you have to leverage yourself. And what that means is that, because it's all about hourly billing in big mm -hmm. firms, is so that you have a higher hourly billing rate. So you can't bill as much time because you have to really work at the strategy end. Now, I loved that part. What I didn't love was having to supervise all of the stuff that was done in order to be to do the strategy yeah. in that particular firm. Okay. If it were up to me, I'd do strategy all day with clients and that's that's what I love. And is that is that kind of what you do now? Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, why don't why don't we talk a little bit about that? <laughs> it's no accident that that's what I do now. Exactly. Yeah. So matching what you love the most in your consulting career and saying, you know, taking what you do now, bringing the two together, like what what was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back and got you to become an entrepreneur? That's a good question. I, you know, there was the story I told you, which was the idea, but I think what got me to that point was I just felt like I couldn't do everything that I wanted to do in that firm. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I wanted to do was, was actually three things. There were three things I wanted to do at the same time. I wanted to do high level strategy work. I wanted to sell work because I really liked working with clients and all of that. And I wanted to run a, an actual business. I had run practices and I had P&L responsibility, but I'd never run an office. Okay. And at that time, um, we had, um, I, you know, I can't even remember how many offices there were globally. I'm sure it was more than 50, definitely fewer than 100. And there was one woman running an office and that was it. There was one. And so I had started up a satellite office with the idea that I could eventually get into a bigger office and run one. And I just wasn't getting that opportunity. And I'm like, you know what? I don't have to stand in line and wait for my opportunity. I'm going to create my own. Um, I, I still remember um, my mother telling me, don't worry. If it doesn't work out, they might hire you back. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, the other piece of it, though, is, you know, just to get really practical is I knew that I was going to make a change at some point. And that's when I started banking a lot of income because I just yeah. wanted to be able to have the flexibility to create whatever my next thing was going to be and not feel like I had to hang on to a job that I didn't love anymore. Sure. Yeah. So creating a, a runway financially for you to kind of be able to burn if you had to in the yeah. transition. 
Yeah. I'm just curious. I don't know if you're willing to share this or not, but can you remember roughly how long that runway was in terms of like monthly expenses, total amount, like not total amount, but how much room did you give yourself to make that transition financially? Well, I actually gave myself probably more than I would if I were doing it now because to start a business back then cost a lot more. Yeah. We had to buy a phone system, sure. we had to buy a copier, we had to rent an office, like all the things you don't really have to do now. Um, so I would say it was about uh, it was about a third of a year's salary. Okay. And, you know, the rule of thumb is, you know, you want to have six months worth, mm -hmm. um, but that was over and above like other assets that I had. So I had other assets I could draw down if I needed sure. to, but I specifically had this war chest of about a third of a year's pay. Cool. It's good to know. Um, mm -hmm. I'm someone who's actually kind of, I still have a, a nine to five and I'm looking to go from this kind of side hustle setup into something that is more, more, you know, full-time basically in terms mm -hmm. of the work that I do. So it's uh, it's good food for thought for me for sure, but also for probably a lot of other people that are contemplating the switch to solo life. Well, I think the other thing when you think about that is is a good way to think about it is, is as income streams. Mm -hmm. Um, and when you have a solo business, whether it's consulting or, or something else, it's you, you can look at revenue streams. And when I started my first business, it was really one revenue stream. Everything, was re everything revolved around one revenue stream. So when you start consulting, you know, the obvious is you, you sell your time for money, yeah. you sell your outcomes for money, and then you can start to create some of those other things, whether it's that you're doing speaking, you're doing, you're writing some kind of, uh, or creating an asset for sale, like mm -hmm. a book or a digital program of some kind. So if you think of them in terms of income streams, I think it's an easier way to move at some point from the side hustle into the, the full-time gig. Yeah, that's a great perspective. It's good to mm -hmm. know. Kind of a high level question here. How can someone make sure that they're matching the strengths that they have as a person to what they're doing in their career? Ah, oh, that's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? It's yeah. the challenge we face through our whole career, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think having personal insight is really important. Mm -hmm. And in other words, first of all, what are the things that you are really good at? And, you know, I've got a, an exercise I run people through sometimes, and it basically, it, it looks something like this. You sit down and you think about and start, just make a list of the top experiences in your career. And things like, oh, I worked on Project X. And then, and you just list them first. So I, and, and, and then include the things that you wouldn't do again, mm -hmm. you know, for anything, for no <laughs> amount of money, right? And so, so you have those two things on your list. And then you kind of bullet point what was involved in that. So, so if it was, you know, it was a merger project. Yep. I did this for, for myself, for example, on a merger project. And who did I work with? What did I like about the team? What did I like about the project? What did I not like? And when you start to do that, and it, it only takes anywhere between, sometimes it's clear with three to five, but it usually doesn't take more than 10 of those experiences. And you start to see them in, an, in a very analytical way. Yeah. So it was clear to me that I was bad at execution, that I just, I get bored with it. It's mm -hmm. not interesting to me. And other people are genius at it. So I love to team up with people who are great executors, but I'm really about the strategy and putting the, you know, the, 
the pieces up here together. So getting really clear on, on what you really love to do is important. And when you think about creating a business, it's what are your talents, right? What do you do really well? What are your passions? And then what's the market? And yeah. you have to, if you think of those as three interlocking circles, it's that middle part yeah. where talents, passions, and a market for them sure. exists. That is exactly, or almost exactly what I say to my younger clients who are like either kind of passionless and have some skills and they're trying to find the passion part and forget about the market or <laughs> they've, uh, they have something that they're really passionate about and they are really strong in it, but then again, just not no one's going to pay them for it right off the, off the bat. So no, I, I love that kind of molding of those three forces. Is it yeah, possible? It, Sorry, what? go ahead. Well, I was oh, just going to say it's, it's, you, you can create a market for certain things. Like mm -hmm. it's easier when you're starting a business. If you tap into an existing market, you can create your own. And that's, a, you know, one of the reasons why side hustles are so great because you can, you know, play with it a little bit and work mm -hmm. with it and mold it until you can see whether you can create a market. That could almost be, I feel like that could be another episode unto itself, but I, I won't dive further into that. Um, but that's that was great. my exact question. You, you read it right off the top of my head. So, <laughs> In terms of just going back to the passion piece that I was mentioning is, would you say that, that you have followed your passion or has the passion for being a strategist been something you've cultivated over your career? I wouldn't say that I started out with a passion for strategy. In fact, I started out, my, my career goal when I was in college was I wanted to be the president of General Motors. Oh, it's very <laughs> I mean, specific. <laughs> I don't know that I could have been any farther away from achieving huh. that than I am right now. But yeah, so I, for me, the passion turned out to be consulting. And what I loved about it was is I found I had a real talent for listening to people, asking questions, and synthesizing. Actually, I should have mentioned that earlier when we talked about good consulting yep. uh, characteristics. The ability to synthesize is really critical because you take vast quantities of data, and I don't mean just like numbers data, but mm -hmm. data like how people are acting and reacting around this issue and the environment you're working in. And so you take in these massive quantities of data and you've got to turn that into something. So I, I loved working with people. I loved that having a big hairy challenge to get my, my teeth in. And then I like, again, for this is very specific to me, but I like to have some time alone to work on that too. I'm not a person who can do everything up in front of a room with a, with a flip chart or, sure. or a whiteboard, I've got to go away mm -hmm. and think about it and do some research and, you know, ask questions some more, listen to people. Yeah. Cool. Um, just to kind of give a little bit of comparison between the two environments, can you answer the question of what's the best and the worst part of working in a large firm, like in your consulting, early consulting days? Okay. Um, the best part is you have this name recognition that you almost don't realize until you leave, mm. right? So you, it's easier to get in the door and you've got a wealth of resources. Sure. I learned so much and I worked with some people who were the tops in their field and I had access to them and it was amazing. 
It was absolutely amazing. Um, the worst thing about it for me, the politics. Hmm. Ugh. I hate internal politics. I have no patience for them. I'm not very good at playing them. I certainly made, I gave a lot of advice to my clients over the years sure. on internal politics, but when they touched me, any objectivity I had went out the window. I was terrible at internal politics. Yeah, I, I feel like that's a big reason why a lot of people leave corporate. And then can you answer that same question now that you're a soloist? Okay, so the best thing is I decide, right? I make the decisions on who I'm going to work with, how much I'm going to charge, what I'm going to spend my time on, what I'm going to create. That's the best thing. Um, it might be the worst thing, too. <laughs> yeah, the buck stops here. If something sure. doesn't work, you know, the only person I have to look at is in the mirror. Um, I would say the most challenging thing, especially when you're first starting, is the consistency of revenue. Yeah. You know, it's, you have to, I think you have to be wired a certain way to just go, okay, well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, you know, throw the dice this, this month and I'm gonna, you know, spend all my time on this big proposal. And if they say yes, I'm great. If they say no, uh oh. Um, and again, I go back to having some financial runway to yep. be able to do that. But yeah, I, I would say that for most people, that's the toughest. Um, I don't, I don't know if it's the toughest for me. I think it's, it was, it certainly was in 2008 okay. when the market dropped out yeah. and I'd made a, a personal decision to move from Chicago to LA where yeah. I really didn't know hardly anybody. That was, that was challenging. I, I wouldn't want to do that again if I could yeah. avoid it. Um, but it's, it, I knew that it wasn't going to last forever. Yeah. I mean, take, you got to take risks at some point. Uh, yeah. I mean, you just have to decide which ones are important to you. Yeah, totally. Sometimes not taking a risk at all is, is the biggest one we take. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Lisa, I'll kick it back over to you. Is there anything you'd like to add here? Um, I, I can totally relate in terms of, you know, after once you become an entrepreneur and all of a sudden it's great that you get to make your own decisions and also that, you know, I have to make all the decisions now. So <laughs> I can definitely relate there. Um, what would you say is the most fun you've had in your career? Boy, let me think about that for a minute. I, it's, it's really parsed out in sort of different chapters um, I had the most fun in the big firm when I was doing merger and acquisition work because it was fly by the seat of your pants. Everything is, uh, is kind of crazy. You're doing big picture. You never know if the CEOs of the client company is going to come back and say, ah, this is stupid, change everything. But it was, you could feel the impact that you make every single day. And I just, I loved that. That was awesome. Um, I think another great time was in the first company that I created because we had such a tight knit group of consultants. And I, I don't know that I've ever had a team like that where they were, they were each not only, you know, crazy qualified in their business, but we did a very careful, um, uh, 
vetting of them to make sure they would fit. So I loved these people. They mm. were they were like family um, in all the good ways. Um, mm. So so I would say that, and then I would say now. I mean, I I'm able to to work with really work with who I want to the people who come to me. And if I if I don't feel like I can help them, or I f I feel like. Ugh, I, you know, I'm, I'm not really going to be able to help that person in the way that's good for both of us. I mm -hmm. say no. And I'm spending my creative time on this idea of market authority and building market authority and helping consultants to build their business. So I, I got to say, I'm having a ball. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, we should have fun, right? Absolutely. Life's too short. Yeah. Life's too, I mean, not every moment of every day is, is a party, but it's overall, I think we should be able to say that, that on balance, we're having fun. And I think that's why the question was so important for me to ask, because I feel like people feel that it should be so serious, but you have to have that element of fun in there to really be enjoying it. And your clients can see that. When I read through your materials and look at your website, I can tell that you're having fun with it. So it, it has a really big impact. Well, I think the other thing, and certainly this was true for me in the course of my career, is that the the you get more comfortable with expressing who you are. Yeah. And, you know, I know in a big firm, I, I always felt like, like I was the odd guy out. Like I was the only one that didn't have a super fancy degree. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't study actuarial science like most of the people there, right? I felt different. And so um, it, was, it was challenging to really be who I was. And when I left the big firm, that was, I was in my uh, early thirties. And that's really when I started to let go and really become um, on the outside, who I already was on the inside. And so I could not have, like, if you look at my website now, I could not have done that, you know, when I was 30. I couldn't have done it. Mm -hmm. um, but gradually, right, gradually it, it came out. And so I think, you know, if I were to give, you know, one piece of advice, which is always dangerous, is, is be who you are as soon as you can. Because we're all perfect in our own way or perfectly imperfect. And the world needs what you have to give. So if you're hiding it, you're not doing yourself any favors and you're certainly not doing the world any favors. Absolutely. Whoa. Just like going to let that settle in for a moment. So cool. <laughs> Thank you. I think you've yeah. answered a question that we tend to ask uh, a lot of our guests here. Would that be accurate, Lisa? Well, I have one more that's slightly different, but... Ah. generally the same kind of thing. Cool. So we normally also ask, what's the best piece of career advice that you have received? Um, probably from a mentor of mine uh, when I was at the big firm. And, you know, he's the one who taught me to always try and see things from the client's perspective. And really what he meant was the other perspective. Right. That we each have our own perspective, but what's the person on the other side of the table thinking? Mm -hmm. And I got that early in my career and I found it was like a secret weapon. When I was in meetings, a lot of times I would be running a team of people and we might have four or five, six. If it was a big project, even eight people in a room before we've sold the project. Right. We're trying to sell the idea. And it was really important for me to be able to imagine what the people on the other side of the table are thinking and wondering so that I could help them. Yeah. 
And it wasn't about selling for selling sake. It was about how can we create a solution that is going to work for them. So it's being able to really put yourself in the, in the other seat. Amazing. And it goes back to that caring piece as well. It's really caring about the person. Yeah. I mean, I just believe it, it all comes back in the end. And so maybe this one doesn't work this time. Maybe we can't help them. I'd rather say that right up front and move on to the next one and let them find the, or even send them in a direction that will help them solve their issue. It's, it's about that. And it, when we look at it that way, it's not that the client is always right. It's that it's important that we look out for the people that we're serving and truly help them to the best of our ability, which sometimes means we say no. Yeah. Love that. Cool. That's amazing. Is there anything else that you'd like to add on any of the topics that we've kind of crossed into uh, throughout the interview? Well, I just think from the standpoint of consulting as a career, Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people think, oh, you know, I have to go to school, get my MBA, and then I have to go through this process and try and get hired by McKinsey or Booz Allen or, or one of those. And absolutely, that's a track. And it's not a bad track if that's what you want, but it doesn't have to be the only track. Mm-hmm. And that I would encourage people to think about consulting. There's a few, um, if you haven't already, there's a few different books on it, especially if you're inside an organization now. It's, it's a little old, this book, but it's still relevant. It's called Flawless Consulting by Peter Block. Peter Block, yeah. Yeah, and it's, he... He's one of the first to really, uh, the first really, to think about internal consulting. And one of the things that I think is helpful is if you're in a staff role now and you're thinking about it, read the book, try his techniques. You can try them inside because you're really an internal consultant when you're Mm -hmm. in a staff role. You can try those on and start to see, kind of try on this idea of consulting and see if it works for you. That's awesome. There's, there's a lot of ways to, to do this. Yeah. Cool. It's a great tip. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at my website, which is RochelleMolton.com. And there is a, there's a daily email I do called The Daily Authority. There's a weekly one. Um, there's our podcast, the podcast, The Business of Authority, which I co-host with Jonathan Stark. And on Twitter, I'm Consulting Chick. Consulting chick. Yes. Yeah. Um, Come find me. Yeah. Uh, Wazo. That is me. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for pronouncing that correctly. A lot of people, I mean, they take their best stab at it and they're usually a little bit off, but I, uh, you got it on the first try. Yeah. Your, your podcast, just to kind of go back to that, has had a really big influence, certainly not just on this show specifically, but also just on on me and I think anyone, and I'm not a software developer, like I'm not really from um, like Jonathan's natural tribe and I'm not really a consultant, so maybe I'm not from your natural tribe, but I still have benefited so much from your your conversations, which really can apply to so many more things than just kind of the, the niche down demographics that you guys both work with. I think it, it's an education that I wish I had earlier in my life and it's just been a really neat thing to uh, wake up to every Monday morning. So thank you. That's awesome. I wish I had it too when I was starting out. <laughs> There's some hard-fought lessons in those episodes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you can hear it. And you're, you're the exact same person today with us as you are on TBOA. And it's, it's really cool to see that. Cool. We'll wrap it up there. 
Thank you so much for joining us this week. We hope you enjoyed this really cool episode with Rochelle and go check out her work for the Career Builders podcast. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Lisa Picosek. Our guest was Rochelle Moulton, and we hope you will join us again soon. Bye for now.